<laughs> Quick! Oh. Cheers! Hello, this is Spencer. We're here with Will and Michael bringing you some adagio for things. Welcome um, to the show! Uh, I'm really excited for today because today we're going to hear from all manner of crank, crackpot, social nihilist, uh, who comprise the conservative uh, intellectualism. And uh, what are they doing on Adagio for Things? You might be wondering. Well, sometimes when they're uh, not trying to make abortion a felony or sell a coup in a sovereign nation, they come down to give us their insights on fire things. season we did an episode where we read an article by uh dan, dan garland dan garbage dan, dan, dan garbage oh, dan uh, garbage i forgot all about him he writes for the national review oh this was uh, a concert review of the new york fell and it was probably one of the strangest reviews any of us have ever read uh not to uh exhume this from the episode graveyard but just to fire off a couple highlights gallanter called Alan Gilbert, a maniacally self-absorbed, said Daniel Trifonov wrote, wore a narrow necktie that dangled down his shirt front. And that like was the grounds, for a, grounds for an awful <laughs> show in and of itself. He called the soloist from the previous piece, Hipsters on Pedestals. And at the end, Gillinter said, uh, the new piece that opened the program was full of phony sophistication, barbarism, and that, here's a quote, the cultural elite are willing to pay for it the, and actually want to pay for it. It is their badge of betterness. Van Sweden may not have a feel for classical music, but he is giving his audience the orchestra they deserve. So is Daniel alone? Daniel is not alone. Are we going to explain why we're out of breath at all? Our blood pressure's up from reading the Arts and Leisure section of uh, the Daily Wire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we, uh, I mean, we attempted this episode uh, like two months ago, and it didn't it didn't quite pan out. In in our effort to uh, find music reviews written by Republicans who are viscerally repulsed by skinny neckties and women wearing pants, uh, we came to the realization that ostensibly every Republican who writes about classical music is a peevish hundred and fifty year old. Let's not generalize. Let's not generalize, but every single one of them who <laughs> writes about classical music is a peevish hundred and fifty year old. So when you read a music review, the New York Times, New Yorker, New Music Box, whatever, you know, most of the time it's just someone went to a concert or listened to a CD and it's a normal review. And you don't really think. Yeah. And they're like, hey, that concert happened. And you're like, wow, thanks for the insight. That concert was good. That concert was bad. Whatever. It, you're lucky if you get that. Sometimes it's just like August 27th, Shake Shack Ensemble played <laughs> uh, a piece by Steve Reich and the audience was there. <laughs> it's just stating facts. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's always good. I feel like I've never read anything critical on something like, I never read someone say, and it was terrible. I just was um, at this thing where Steve Smith, who's a, we'd say music journalist in New York, was talking and he was saying that there's this like newer philosophy about concert writing mm. coming about that has, instead of judging whether something is good or bad and that being the core purpose of an article is is more to have the person writing it be a tastemaker just saying like here's a thing you should check out because it is 
like in, alerting people to cool <clears throat> stuff whether like regardless of what your opinion on a given genre or composer is okay which like, sounds a little bit i mean it's just a different way of saying what you think is good basically you can infer what the person thinks is bad based on what they omit and he basically was saying like it's fun and easy to write the bad reviews i guess or to read the bad reviews yeah. too. i think that i can see both points i think that Yes, I feel like we're in a place with new music where the big push is for everyone to support each other. So I feel like people might not be so driven to be extra critical of their peers. But at the same time, I feel like then we should establish a new type of language of how to properly critique each other. Because I do think that, at least from a personal standpoint, just getting out of the journalism realm, if I'm ever at a concert and someone asks me, afterwards what i thought about it i'm gonna say oh it was good so you lie to people well no i mean i i I like i'm sure i like some things about it but i'm but i mean if you wanted a fair conversation maybe maybe the it's more about how do we positively critique two different conversations because one you tell you're informing other people about your opinions on a piece so that they can have an idea of where to start looking at things and the other one you're just kind of making sure that a composer doesn't go cry themselves to sleep or something Okay, so anything. Anyway, but for the most part, New York Times, New Yorker, New Music Box, just regular reviews. But conservative writers, more often than other, say, normal writers, um, <laughs> just needlessly insinuate politics. Let's call so, them sane writers. I think this is a yes, perfect example of an un- adversarial approach to journalism. Maybe. <laughs> so how I've organized this, I have a few... These are all people who should have milkshakes thrown at them, if this were the UK. So what's, just in so, case we didn't say it so far, our goal is to talk about the, the weird relationship that right-wing media has to classical music. Yes. Define weird. Oddly clingy. <laughs> um, you know what? We are going to define weird as we go through this. Great. Um, conservative intellectuals. Their conception of art and classical music is very strange, and we're going to talk about that in five excerpts. The first one is Nicholas Gallagher from the National Review. He wrote a review of a performance at the Met of Rigoletto. The, the Rigoletto casino one? Set in Vegas. Oh, okay, cool. That's fun. So I'm going to read, read a little bit of this. He writes, Stop me if you've heard this one before. The head of state is corrupt and venal. Instead of attending to the needs of the people, he spends his time chasing sex and committing assorted crimes to cover it up. One of his henchmen, who combines the roles of fixer and funny man, has been energetically assisting his boss. Now wait, before you scroll down to the comment section and start typing furiously, I'm not talking about Donald Trump and Roger Stone, nor am I talking about the Clintons and their assorted hangers-on and Monica. How old is the audience that you hear that... You hear that synopsis, and you the first thing you think is, "Oh, it's Monica Lewinsky." Yeah, well, is that, this, why would you even tie that in? Yeah, is this like, season oh. two of South Park. She like, she <laughs> came out with like right. a whole line of handbags. It's been like a very long time. It's circled back, and she's she like was... a force for empowerment for women. Like, I yeah, she was yeah. she was completely railroaded. I'm being serious. Okay, so so anyway, he he goes he he says some nice things about the singers. He he hates it though. He hates He's the, just like Verdi is a hack. He hates no, the show. No, he doesn't hate Verdi, but he he hates the the design. He hates the concept. Ring oh, he hates the Vegas. casino thing. Yeah, yeah, he hates that. It's so harmless <clears throat> and fun. 
I, I'm also not like, you know, the community bit where they're like, we're doing Macbeth, but it's at Gangland, Chicago. And then like Joel McHale goes like, oh, wow, original big eye roll. Yeah. I'm totally in that camp. It's a little I mean, hacky, but I it's think, also the Met. But I think that's, the you know, whatever. He, he, he takes it. He takes it to a different to a different end. He writes, one suspects another excuse for the pointedly unpointed production because these guys are all great writers politicization is a word which the met whose audience is more politically diverse than heartland stereotypes of uptown manhattan might suggest would prefer to avoid it must be admitted that writers who share the politics of myself and this magazine are often the ones most prone to voice such a complaint and with good reason the art world is rife with bad politicization and always seem to cut one way from the trashy and incoherent Siegfried at the Bayreuth Festival, in which Americans in a trailer park smear each other down with oil, to George Lucas's insistence that George Bush is Darth Vader and Cheney is the Emperor. Again, this is 2019. Bad politicization happens when a director imposes his agenda artificially on a work. It's preachy, obnoxious, and often corrodes the artistic value of the production in question. What? Apropos of Wait nothing. A I didn't really follow Wait it. Wait a minute. I mean... Is he making the argument mm-hmm. that art in general is not meant to have any type of message or well, this is, this is a, external a, a impetus theme through this that I, I want is to be a Is he saying that like, this, like the production designers should not impose any sort of anything on... I, I think, I think the, the point is the stuff about him being a victim of politicization, it, it came from nowhere. Yeah, I, I like we were, we were talking whatever your criticisms of the production at the Met might be that it's the, silly or it, saccharine or uh, an inappropriate yeah. adaptation has nothing to do with it imposing political beliefs on someone who died in 1893. Well, but, and it, it almost sounds like he's upset that it wasn't more political. What did he want it to like involve like Sammy Davis Jr. like being an, a Nixon fan? Uh, okay, so he goes on to say, one reason to make peace with or even encourage good politicization, it doesn't make sense when I'm reading it out of context. It doesn't make sense in context. So it's fine. <laughs> one reason to encourage good politicization is to be able to take the good with the bad. <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone just hear Ginger sigh in the background? <laughs> Even she can't take it. <laughs> For instance, almost every comedy, certainly including Verdi's, is, as critics from the ancient Greeks down to the present day have noted, inherently conservative. That's right. What Even is the happening? Greeks said comedies are inherently conservative. Among what other reasons, happening? comedies tend to convey a strongly pro-marriage message. Actually, you know, he's not entirely wrong. It was basically that there was... A message based in morals yielding positivity and therefore like marriage and like fruition of s- stuff versus <laughs> everyone dying. But it's, it had nothing to do with it being <laughs> funny or being a lighthearted story. So it's not really it doesn't equate. It doesn't make sense. And, well, I don't and, even think you can use the term conservative if, in no. terms of like ancient Greece because that that's not a that's a subjective. Well, modern conservative and yeah, Greek values were rather different. So. Among other reasons, comedies tend to be tend to convey a strongly pro-marriage message. I wish he were here so we could clarify what the fuck he's talking about there. 
convey a pro-marriage message. It's very loose, because he's basically just saying well, comedies end in a wedding, tragedies end in death. That's the old, that's a standard thing. That, However, that is it, fairly... it isn't a pro-marriage. Like, when he says pro-marriage, you get the sense that he's saying, like, two straight people having kids at least nine months after they exchange rings. Whatever, his, like, historic precedent there is for comedies ending in marriage... He is misreading it. Whatever he's talking about, they're absolutely misreading it. <clears throat> Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, it's like people uh, meet and they're all Greek and then they fall asleep and then nothing happens for an hour and thirty five minutes and then they all get <laughs> married. Nobody gets high or or like or partner swaps or oh, meets do. a bunch of fairies and does a bunch of drugs and then shows up naked in oh, front of their parents sarcastic. and then has sex yeah. again and then puts on a play within a play and then everybody gets married. There was right. donkey fucking too. So like he's I, yeah he's misreading that good. saying that like comedy is the entire purpose was to promote marriage. It's like no, the marriage was used at the ending because that's a very convenient plot point to end with a celebration. We're but, disagreeing but with that point, but it's not pro marriage yeah it's not and how many how many comedic operas are there? are, are pro marriage <laughs> exist how many comedic like, operas exist nobody dies well it's always people or like fucking each other the, Mo- I mean, the mozart having operas. sex with everyone else it's fucking stupid all right so so he says but but there are higher reasons too politics despite its seediness is ultimately the managing of human affairs. Thus, He's just a fan of family values. He lo- fucking is- loves family values. That's his first, his like go-to Pornhub search. <laughs> so so once again, uh, what the fuck is this website doing making any of these points on this topic? No, like, like reading the, the articles on that site. I haven't read this one, but like it's, it is always kind of like you get the sense that everyone was just kind of pissed the whole time. Where you say he's were- assuming that everyone feels the same way he does. Yeah. When when he says, uh, let me let me read it again. It must be admitted that writers who share the politics of myself in this magazine are often the ones most prone to voice such a complaint. The thing about George Lucas's insistence that George Bush is Darth Vader and Cheney's the Emperor, you kind of get the sense that he feels alienated from the rest of the art world. That he's like the conservative oh, guy who's there. Okay, Spencer, take us one further down the rabbit hole. Just like how we're talking about classical music, so you don't have to. We're also reading all this shit, so you don't have to. We're um, we're gonna take a very quick detour away from classical music, probably just as revealing. Kyle Smith, who writes for the National Review, <laughs> he you wrote an article about Bruce Springsteen. Do you guys like like Bruce Springsteen? Everything just kind of sounds like this, but then like there's like toy piano in the back. Bruce Springsteen has a confession to make. I made it all up, he tells the audience in his new Netflix special, Springsteen on Broadway. Bruce Springsteen, the persona, all gritty, working-class authenticity, is a creation. I've never held an honest job in my life, he says. I've never done any hard labor. I've never worked nine to five. I've never worked five days a week until right now. Bruce Springsteen is a brilliant artist. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Where does wait, I, wait, I where does the bit. quote end? I skipped a little yeah. bit. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Bruce Springsteen in his new Netflix special, like, sort of playfully admits that he. Like, you realize I've been a musician for like fifty years and haven't had to be like a bricklayer, right? Like his overalls. He didn't get his overalls. I don't know if he wears overalls. He doesn't wear but overalls. He... he wears like jeans and like a ripped T-shirt. Okay, well, you know, he yeah, he he didn't rip it like in the in the mines. 
Uh, so he, he writes, uh, suppose that Springsteen was indisputably a fraud. Wait, <laughs> Here's an adversarial journal. <laughs> suppose we learned last year that his real name was Bryce Springfield Fourth, Duke of Bedford, that he'd grown up riding to hounds, attending Oxford and receiving a double first in Russian and chemistry. I think he's describing the person who married his mom. Uh, suppose, <laughs> suppose the closest he had ever come to New Jersey was Jersey. Suppose is he, he just saying that he's British. He's just say, is he just saying that British? <laughs> oh, I get, yeah, yeah, like the... he finishes the. Well, suppose he'd grown up a right proper English twit. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> what? Okay, no. is he, like, is he going after? He going yeah, like this? British people. Yeah. Like, where's he going? How would Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town sound then? I mean, would we dismiss him as a charlatan and stop showing up for his concerts. No, or then it would just be seventies punk. It would be like the Sex Pistols, who were from England. I don't understand what his. I don't think point the, the Sex Pistols. I don't think Sid Vicious went on many fox hunts. Lord Vicious. It's what? pronounced Lord Vicious. I know three codes, and I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> I don't know what Sid Vicious. Now, wait a minute. Oh. <laughs> but what is the point he's trying to make? I don't understand. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll get to the point. While all of this would be a very interesting develop for a development for a biographer, it shouldn't matter to a critic or a fan. The songs would still be the songs. They'd still be as wistful, poetic, and propulsive as they are. This is a theme. Take note of that that the messaging doesn't matter. It's just the music. Then he writes, So why aren't the critics denouncing Spring Springsteen as the fraud he says he is? Bruce Springsteen, because Springsteen really did grow up working class in a no-account New Jersey town. True, he himself never had a job except musician, but he was very close to someone who did. The Bruce Springsteen character is really the rocker's father, Douglas. Douglas, his son explains in the concert, worked at the rug mill, the Ford factory, the coffee factory. He worked as a bus driver, truck driver, taxi driver. Skipping ahead, his persona may be fake, but his artistry is sublime. So what's the conclusion? Springsteen's music, basically writing songs from the perspective of his father and playfully admitting that he himself is not the working class hero. This person's takeaway is, oh, he's a charlatan. That's, but I, just want to, I don't understand. So he, I, I'm unclear if he likes Bruce Springsteen's music or not. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, uh, no, I think he does like, like Bruce Springsteen's music. He has problems with the man. He has like a whole web of like Woody Allen-esque issues, but just because instead of it being like family molestation, it has to do with like, <laughs> oh, he didn't like really like punch a clock. Okay, so we got through that one. Um, have either of you seen Hamilton? I have. I've no, I've only listened to it. Okay, I've listened to a few tracks. Uh, I actually have another Kyle Smith. It's about um, Hamilton. This is uh, just as not classical, and it's less political, but it's double weird. So <laughs> it's about Lin Manuel Miranda, and when I clicked on it, uh, you know, a National Review article about Lin Manuel Miranda. I figured it would be like Manuel. Manuel. Yeah. All right, just map me. You saying, sound like a right winger when you say Lin Manuel. Lin Manuel. I do. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, I didn't. Lin Manuel. I'm, I'm yeah, not, but I don't really. I don't I know if it was okay, that pronounced. I didn't pick. No, up it's on. okay. I just want to let you know. 
I'm gonna do we'll that just again. dub you over. <laughs> yeah, just dub me saying Manuel <laughs> over, over all the other ones. So, Kyle Smith is a huge fan of Lin Manuel Miranda. Oh, really? He uh, I wasn't expecting he, that. He's a huge fan, he, and and more importantly, he's a, he's a concerned fan. Oh, the article oh, talks. The article starts off, you know, the with the success of Hamilton and and what a masterpiece it is, and what a rare talent Miranda is, and. Um, he writes, since then, meaning since Hamilton, since Hamilton, Miranda's accomplishments have been spotty. He turned up as a singer-actor in Mary Poppins Returns. He had a funny guest gig on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Last year, he did the voice of Gizmo Duck on Disney's DuckTales. It gets worse. The most recent work to bear the vaunted name of Miranda as author is an embarrassing collection of inspirational old lady verses adapted from Twitter called Good Morning, Good Night, Little Pep Talks for Me and You. The volume should have been called Galord Grief. To call this book of self-help inanities doggerel would be an insult to dogs. It's like getting locked in the Hallmark aisle at CVS. Is this a book or the copy for a set of kitchen magnets. It's alarming to watch a Pulitzer Prize-winning MacArthur-certified genius take a turn for the Oprah. <laughs> First of all, don't insult Oprah. Second of all, that's not what genius grant means. Third of all, he's skipping a shitload of stuff Lynn manuel Miranda did. Some of it I agree is shit. What do you agree with sh- agree is shit? All just all no, like no, no, the just, random gigs he's taken because that's what he's taking issue with. Yeah, I, no, I mean you've got to take what he gets. <laughs> this is not this is not abnormal that's, for that's him though. Lin Manuel Miranda for years has taken like small bit parts to fund himself while he's worked on huge projects because for a long time he did like minor acting stuff while he was working on writing in the Heights, which was an amazing show. I think I had a really good time and I thought like the lyricism, like the lyrics in it were incredible. You know, fast forward six months after that, which it was very successful for a first time out writing, producing, whatever lead acting in a Broadway show he did. He was just doing like supporting actor shit in like episodes of House and like showing up and being like, I'm sure, going to be, the, just I'm gonna be the fun Puerto Rican guy who knows how to rap really good. And like, and well, that's what he did. And then two working. years after that, he came out with Hamilton and now he's doing some other stuff. And he wrote the music for Moana, which I don't think was all that. Great. Oh my gosh. I love that song. I like some of the songs. I think a lot of it's a little phoned in, but beside the point, like the guy does other work and it's not well, all going to be on HBO. He's going to be in his dark materials, the new TV show. That's. But I'm just saying, like he's not. Whoa. He's not doing too shabby. He's also never are. been like an incredible actor or anything like that. He's just a really good writer. Oh, you don't think he's a great actor? No, I've are heard he, mixed reviews. Kyle, I will Kyle say, Smith uh, agrees. Yeah, Let but me, that's not the point. The guy's taking this as the point. It's like the, the the guy isn't. He didn't win a MacArthur Genius Grant for being an incredible actor. He's not like. He's not Daniel Day Lewis. He's a lyricist. Kyle Smith agrees with you. But I, I think you have disagreement in the gravity of taking such shabby one-bit gigs, like an episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Why not? That sounds fun as shit. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, it's an enormous waste of your talent. So let me finish reading. Um, <laughs> that, that potential, someone needs to tell him after tossing a glass of water in his face, ice water in his face, 
is in writing. His potential is in writing. True, Miranda is an okay actor. He is also a so-so singer. I offer no opinion on whether he is adequate at doing the voice of a cartoon talking duck. But the average chorus boy on Broadway, again, what year is he writing in? Chorus boy? (laughs) (laughs) But the average chorus boy on Broadway is a far more talented performer than he is. I don't think we use boy anymore for any person. Chorus Uh, boy is like an old termy... No, but I mean, but even so, there's no like chorus of young people in any show ever. National Review writers probably use maybe boy Annie, for a but it's not the same person. Oh, you mean like age-wise, like being like a child? Well, then you're a chorister if you're older. Or I, but either way, you're a member you're of a the ensemble. Spinster. You're no, not a chorus, chorus boy person. in music theater. Is like stereotypically like the people in the background dancing that are the men. I, but then you're yeah. ensemble. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, I think that's just an, he's using an old-timey word. I know that's okay. my point. How how old do you think he is? You think he's thirty, or you think he's obviously no? I think much he's younger. I think he's much younger you and he's talks younger. like he's older. Okay, uh, I'm going to address that too. But the average chorus boy on Broadway is a far more talented performer than he is. So, a concerned fan of Miranda who also thinks he sucks at everything else he does. What is special about Miranda is that he can write. Everything else is a hobby. Leave the coffee mug poetry to the coffee mug poets. Few among us have the capacity to do something truly exceptional. Lin-Manuel Miranda has proven he does, and every day he isn't trying to do something as brilliant as Hamilton, he does a disservice to himself and to the rest of us. What I'm taking away from that is he thinks that Lin-Manuel Miranda is his servant. And that he exists to yeah, provide him with things as good as Hamilton. He doesn't that he owe can... anyone anything. Lin-Manuel Miranda can write or not write That's, anything he wants. The, the, the first thing I thought when I read this was, this reminds me of when you read a comment on Facebook and you know it was written by someone who's 65. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty fair assessment. <laughs> have you seen old people of Facebook? <laughs> no. Oh, fucking amazing. What's it, a blog? Oh, or like a sort of subreddit. I'm going to have to read but uh, it's way crazier than this but also i like i like the idea that this guy just spends all day writing open letters to celebrities <laughs> who he thinks are <laughs> wasting their time you know who's actually <laughs> you know? wasting their time <laughs> yeah right no you write like dear jack black <laughs> here that you're considering doing school of rock too you are a very talented performer Please do not waste your precious talent portraying an indolent substitute teacher for is the this second real? time. I thought you were making this up as this a joke. This is not the pick of destiny. No, I made that up. Oh, oh. that was so it's, good, though. I thought it you were sounds really real. Yeah, but you were convincing. That was great acting. I'm like, he's reading and everything. I'm better than Miranda. Can we do an episode where we talk about how Andrew Lloyd Webber did School of Rock the musical and how that's very telling of the rest of his career and no one should remember him ever? <laughs> Definitely. Oh, that's... I hate him. <laughs> that so movie was much. so. The cute. movie was, was amazing. Though, yeah. I just hate Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, so he's not much. one of my favorites. He's more than not one of my favorites. I think he's garbage. I like Phantom of the Opera. I admit it. I do. No, it's a piece of shit. I like it. It's trash. Uh, mm. We, we got to finish. Yeah, we, we have two more to get through. Okay. Who wants to talk about William F. Buckley? Not me. Thirty-five <sighs> people in this room are raising their hands. the The enthusiasm is palpable. <clears throat> all of our mescaline is about to kick in. So uh, this actually kind of falls more in line with the Springsteen article, even though I thought about reading this whole thing and then 
William F. Buckley impression, but I don't know if it's good enough. I have no idea what William yeah, F. Buckley you could do sounds anything, like, so I you wouldn't... could probably just be like, the left media. <laughs> I would never know. <laughs> and I would be like, yeah, it's dead on, but I had a stroke. <laughs> I am going to read for you an obituary he wrote for Shostakovich. Oh, what? Okay, a... we will let you read it. Poor Shostakovich. He was uh, he was hounded much of his life by the, the the beasts who have run the Soviet Union since he he was eleven years old. I I I can't do that for two paragraphs. If there was a resolute flicker of resistance, uh, we are not aware of it. Shostakovich's posture was a kind of clerical conformity. Something much less than the miserable Yevtushenko, with his flamboyant theatrical and ardor for kissing the backside of any Soviet bureaucrat. On, on the other hand, it was a considerable distance removed from the quiet, artistically whole resistance of his close friend Rostropovich, and an infinity removed from the heroic resistance of Rostropovich's close friend Solzhenitsyn... Link, link down below. Um, can I? Can I, <laughs> Kate, can Kate, I Katie's laughing like she she knows how to pronounce it. Solzhenitsyn. 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 Rostropovich's close friend. We've done Solzhenitsyn. no <laughs> <laughs> We'll fix it in post. One thing, sadly, of 1948, when Shostakovich, with a troop of Soviet conformists, appeared in the United States at the Waldorf Conference to add a nosegay. To the highest bloom, a nosegay is like a little floral arrangement. Obviously, I had to look this up when I read it. Um, but it's like a little floral arrangement that you add to a thing. I don't know. That was the conference that spawned the presidential candidacy of Henry Wallace and restored Shostakovich's favor in the Soviet Union. His first symphony, composed in 1925 at age 19, is quite possibly his best work. Better by far than the first symphony of Mahler, who influenced him. No need to say that. Irrepressible and melodic and exquisitely dissonant. His fifth, composed in 1937, was dubbed a celebration of the 20th anniversary of the Soviet Revolution. Perhaps beneath his inscrutable, Prufrockian timidity, Shostakovich knew that whatever blather he wrote about a piece of music, it spoke for itself. That symphony was performed at Tanglewood, conducted by Rostropovich, the very night that word reached the conductor that his old friend had died at a privileged Moscow hospital at the age of 68. The program notes, written by Shostakovich for the performance of this symphony, were straightforward. In quotes, The theme of my symphony is the making of a man. I saw a man with all his experiences in the center of the composition, which is lyrical in form from beginning to end. The finale of the optimistic solution of the tragically tense moments of the first movement. Forage through that for as long as you like, and you won't come up with a trace of the Marxism-Leninism that dogged him, alternating abuse and sycophantic honors. Would he have reached further in a free environment, equaled the composition of Rachmaninoff, perhaps? We cannot know, but there is reason to celebrate the beautiful music he wrote. Never mind that it did not represent a creative musical advance, and to forget the rest. This guy's a fucking idiot. Because the whole, this symphony is 
the summation of what created this man and it has all to do with optimism derived out of tragic circumstances and blah 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 that is like the definition of what was called formalism which was a music and artistic doctrine set forth by stalin and by the soviets to say that you have to basically convey communist values in your music or else we'll fucking shoot you that's where that comes from so to say that it had nothing to do with the marxist or communist ideas that he was living under has nothing to do with what shostakovich was actually going through that being said it's not to say that that makes shostakovich's music lesser anything it's just this guy's understanding of it is stupid i i also don't really love shostakovich but that's beside the point i actually saw the fifth symphony played by chelsea symphony uh, I think the Saturday. Fifth Symphony is really good. I, I like that. I, one. I like the Fifth Symphony. I think Shostakovich is a very, <clears throat> for the amount of music he put out, he's very hit or miss. His batting average is low. He just swung a lot. I think what's undeniable is he he was a formidable musician, and this obituary basically makes him out to be like a craven Soviet sycophant who just like wrote program notes that would be pleasing to the oligarchy. No, but then he says like they weren't ple- like all these articles keep like double backing on themselves and destroying their own points. Like yeah. just because like the flow of a sentence leads them in one direction and they go like, mm. oh, but I didn't mean that. I think because at certain points he says like and Shostakovich had nothing to do with the mark. Like the message of Shostakovich's piece has nothing to do with Marxism. Uh, Did I misunderstand? Can you yeah, read that no, part? Well, maybe I missed. Maybe I just misunderstood it. Because there's a whole thing um, about someone being removed really far from somebody. Uh, forge through that, meaning his music. Forge through the music for as long as you like, and you won't come up with a trace of the Marxism-Leninism that dogged him. No, that's fucking everywhere. Mm-hmm. He had to. Like, in the earlier symphonies, it's less so because he hadn't yet received a letter in the mail saying, we're going to kidnap your family and kill you and torture them unless you change your ways. Um, Shostakovich literally slept in the hallway of his apartment building for like a month because he didn't want to wake up his family when he expected to be black bagged. Terrifying. Jesus Christ. Sorry to make it dark. No, I mean, it, it is fucking dark. And William F. Buckley, who, who took eight years of piano for some poor teacher who came to his house four days a week and went to boarding school, is, uh, you know, just going to summarize Shostakovich, Shostakovich's life as, yeah, he, this pussy wrote some good music. But he was a pussy. There's no reason to ever really describe someone who just kind of went through their life as a composer and didn't face much as brave for real. Like if they say something that's a little bracing, that's not really a good reason. Shostakovich Mm. literally faced internment and execution multiple times. I don't love his music, but the guy kept writing music even when he got told if if you do this wrong, we're going to kill you. It's like at that point you could have just commendable there. You could have just quit and like, you know, taken up a job in a factory and not risked it. I don't know, maybe it's possible there were structures in place where he couldn't change careers because of the way the Soviet Union worked. I don't know. Either way, that's a lot. I have one more to read for you. Okay. And it's from someone named Hilton Kramer. (laughs) What was that first name? Hilton. Hilton. Are like any the, of these the writers hotel? not from Martha's Vineyard? Possibly no. Also, Very possibly no. <laughs> Hilton Kramer, he wrote for the New York Times, and he wrote for a bunch of other places, but he's probably more well-known for having founded, along with a pianist named Samuel Lippmann, 
the new Criterion, which is still around, and it's like National Review. It's for like you know the intellectual conservative. The current editor for New Criterion is someone who likes to um, this guy Roger Kimball. He he likes to compare Trump to Pericles and use other like historical and what? literary mm-hmm. references. Oh. They're they're just like pipe smoking merchants of sophistry they're just all fucks they're like the readers aren't gonna know what the fuck that means keep print it yeah it sounds smart trump is like testicles (laughs) (laughs) but but hilton kramer was like a like a real guy i mean he was sort of i guess he's sort of been forgotten he he doesn't have the like longevity as a you know a william f fuckley but um you know he he was he was one of the guys here he is uh, writing about an exhibition of African American artists in Boston. This is from 1970. He's not talking about music. He's talking about art, visual it, art, visual art, legitimate art. But I think this gives you an idea of just like the lineage of the thinking. Would a museum with a healthier, more knowledgeable, and sympathetic interest in contemporary art? have been in a position to handle the complex problems of a black show differently. Jesus. Don't really know. We're all shaking our heads. Don't worry, folks. Okay, keep going. I love it. (laughs) I'm reading this because I agree with it. Uh, (laughs) This guy's got it. Um, Don't really know. For so long as political criteria are insisted upon in the selection of black shows... And the imposition of rigorous artistic standards is regarded as simply one more form of white racism. I am not sure that any art institution, no matter what its past history may be, can deal with the black problem any other way. Yet I see no point in pretending that an exhibition such as the present one in Boston is anything but what it actually is. An art exhibition mounted under the pressures of political expediency that fails, by and large, to justify itself in terms of artistic accomplishment. I mean, he's obviously saying some very different things, but it's also kind of funny that all the articles that we've been reading through are essentially really, really watered down attempts to give some sense of well-roundedness to their, like, stupid vitriol. To say that, oh, we're not just a bunch of, like, morons beating a drum to, like, say we hate brown people and we hate taxes and all sorts of stuff we actually have deep opinions and that's why we're talking about art which well, seems like what he's yeah. saying in that last sentence he's just going like oh this is an attempt to make a group of people look better because they're just uh but by by making a bad attempt at art or something well yeah i mean i think first of all it's a really it's a really bad faith interpretation i mean even if you think you know I, his or mine yeah his oh okay thank you. you know i'm not a conservative i i am a leftist I am a DSA member. But definitely, if the only selling point in your piece is some critique of society, uh, regardless of, of how earnest it is, like that's not enough for you to be making good art. But this person seems to be totally skeptical. And I think also these people that we've been covering, I think they're, ske- they're skeptical in, in general of political art, Art as an expression of social positioning. Overall, there's this bizarre need for right-wing journalists to like justify their sense of intelligence by critiquing art or feeling somehow involved with the performing arts that mm-hmm. no one else seems to really feel. 
which I mean, people obviously feel the a connection to it, but it, there's this weird thou doth protest too much level yeah. of involvement and criticism from them. And like involvement to the level of, I mean, it, it doesn't just relate to journalism. Look at like the Koch brothers. City Ballet in New York. The building is the David H. Koch Theater. That's right. Katie's dad photoshopped it out of our wedding photos. I love that. <laughs> that was That's the awesome. that was the talk I hosted that that you came to. It was like a year ago now with Jason Eckhart and a, a journalist Alex Koch. And Alex Koch specialized in like the Koch brothers, and we just talked about the Koch brothers and the Mercers. And how they are just bankrolling so many of our institutions. And I think they see it as armor against criticism that they aren't looking out for anyone but number one. You know, because their their main interest is very plainly what's going to make me the most money and make me the most. But I mean, even tying episodes together as uh, either as from our listeners perspective as you've heard in the past or will hear in the near future because we have no idea what episode order we're releasing again <laughs> there's an online newspaper called the epoch times which is run by the same right-wing religious organization that runs the shen yun symphony whose ads you see all over the damn place and so there's this again weird connection that these people feel that they have to make some kind of impact in performing arts for some reason takeaways what are your takeaways? One of my takeaways was that it sounded more like these people wanted to appear like they loved and appreciated this music more than they actually just loved and appreciated the music. Well, we and don't know that. We don't, but that's the way it comes across. And one of the reasons <laughs> that it comes across that way is they can't seem to hire a writer who has the ability to convey intricate human thought <laughs> well enough that it doesn't come across that way. <laughs> Like, if you really thoroughly enjoy and take the time to understand something, it's going to be apparent to a reader because even if you're not the best writer in the world, because it's going to be like, well, this person obviously cares a lot, but they have a genuine sense of what's going on, even though that syntax didn't scan or something. These sure. people are obviously just kind of like mind fucking themselves into having some kind of like vague relationship to some aspect of the music that reflects their presupposed beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you subscribe to the notion that art is inherently progressive, which I would, and politics is inextricably linked to music because music comments on and influences the conditions of life, and politics is ultimately the, the management of the social conditions of life, you have a very uphill battle as a conservative because ultimately your project then is fundamentally opposed to the project of art. And if you enjoy art, you have to spend all of the time you spend enjoying art reconciling with the fact that the art you enjoy is opposed to your worldview and philosophy. And that to me is why so many of the points of the Kyle Smith article, the Buckley article, the, uh, the first Nicholas Gallagher article, so much of what they're talking about is that regardless of the politics that are baked into the piece, uh, it doesn't matter. And that the piece can be appreciated divorced from the politics 
Because if the piece is inherently political, then you have to spend all of the time that you would spend enjoying the music just listening to someone uh, protest against you. I think that's it. I think we got it. I think that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Good well, job. If you feel like we've said enough things that can end the episode, we can just cut it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone like, sure. just go, plop, we're done. And then the music. Hi, all. Michael here. And for this episode, I got to sit down and interview the one and only Michael Seltenreich. As a composer, Michael has won several prestigious awards, such as the Toru Takamitsu Composition Prize, the Martirano Competition, and the Prime Minister Award in Composition in Israel. His music has been described as engaging, effervescent, energetic, and assured. With the several commissions he has going on at the same time, plus trying to get a doctorate, it's amazing that he found the time to sit down with us. But he did, and we are very thankful. I hope you enjoyed the interview and are as inspired by it as I was. Take a listen. So I spend all day today already fighting with people about music on Facebook. So <laughs> I knew this was going to be a good interview. <laughs> what was it about? What was it? Was this like a full-on flame war on Facebook? Yeah. So I think the issues at hand were such that here in America, we're much more woke about had to do with the programming mm-hmm. uh, in Israel, where it's hyper-conservative. Mm. Only romantics. Oh, really? Yeah, like, not no. even going farther and farther back. It's, like, very much a very specific slice yeah, of time. Yeah, Interesting. Very, very, very like, romantic. Okay. And, and whenever you criticize that, people go, like, oh, then you can't appreciate the, the geniuses. Because mm. I can still find new stuff in their music, right? So I don't need anything but... You know, Beethoven and, and Brahms, right? Because they... It's really? So, that's, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's not what I'm saying. They can stay geniuses. You're of the opinion of what? That there should be more? I'm of a the broadening opinion, of that? Before I'll state my opinion, I I, mm. I will say that a, a, another part of that discussion had to do with like, what is the role of the orchestra? If the role of the orchestra is to educate the public or mm-hmm. is it to cater to the public? Ooh, that's a... Oh. You may have just given us an idea for a topic on the show for next season. But yeah, I want to hear your take on that. So my, my take is double in the sense that let's ignore new music completely for a minute. The audience cannot want to hear music they don't know. Even, you know, other older music, like other classics and, and stuff like that, they just don't know. Like Sibelius is not mm-hmm. really played in Israel a lot. And Bruckner is not really... Well, Bru- mm-hmm. Bruckner is maybe a little bit more, but... Many composers are just not played, and then the audience would never know that they would want that. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the orchestra needs to educate, and that's beyond the new music okay. part. And then about new music, I just think that any art form, if it only relies on past work, any kind of like art realm, if it does not rely on new stuff, it's basically an archive, right? It doesn't... That's yeah. Like I can art see, like, dies if it's not being created anew. I like that. In that case, the orchestra is acting as educator. Do you feel that depends on the circumstance? Like, is there a case where the orchestra is more catering to an audience, or do you think that that's the primary role of what the orchestra should be? There's another element to that because in Israel and you know in many European countries as well, many orchestras are state funded. 
Uh, I don't know the situation here in America, but I assume it's much more privately. Uh, it's, I think it's, yeah, there I might be there some, subsidies, some subsidies, but it's... Yeah. And because the orchestras are publicly funded, it both, both uh, gives them more responsibility to be committed to the populations that are funding them, mm-hmm. right, in, in, on the one hand, but also kind of liberates them from having to sell tickets. So it acts as two things. I can say, okay, that's true. You're from Israel. I am. And I was talking with Phil and he was giving me some different points, like maybe some avenues to go down. And one of them was not just that, but that you do like to travel a lot. That I like to travel a lot? Yeah. Or you do travel a lot. Do you do you travel a lot and not like it? Well, sometimes I don't like it. <laughs> okay. My family is in Israel. I try to go there at least twice a year. Okay. I try. Yeah. At least twice a year. And then also I had some time where I lived in Paris. Oh, when was that? That was beginning in 2012. No, wait, make sure I understand the timeline. So you, you lived in Israel, you moved to Paris before going to Juilliard? Or yes. was it? Oh, got it. So this is Paris happened before Juilliard. Then you moved to New York. Yes. Okay. Um, now I'm following. I got it. That makes sense. So what was Paris like? You know, so this was a very formative time in my young compositional life. And it was very, 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 very hard. You know, okay. uh, mm-hmm. they say, you know, this cliche that tragedy plus time is comedy. I went to France believing that that's my place mm-hmm. musically, right? That I'm going to get there and then everybody naturally will recognize how part of their culture I am and they will mm-hmm. embrace me and we will all, you know, celebrate together with like French accents. This is France. Yeah. Uh, this didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, like basically every plan I had in France didn't pan out. Oh, wow. Did you have like very specific things in terms of like, I'm going to study here. I'm going to work with this person. Like, did you have very concrete ideas that ended up changing or was it kind of more like you're saying this more of a general concept of what it would be like? And it was just radically different from what happened. Yeah. Okay. So what basically happened is that officially I moved to France hoping to study with uh, Dutier that I felt was... Um, he was somebody I felt was a connection between the past and the future mm-hmm. for me. I could hear how he is the continuation of Debussy and Ravel and, and more traditional mm-hmm. French composers, but also like someone I felt like lives in Horizon. An Horizon that I couldn't find before I found his music. I want to keep a discourse with those previous composers, but I didn't really know if there's any avenues left open. And then he showed some of those avenues and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is the person I was looking for. And I decided I'm going to move to France and study with him. Mm-hmm. He not only did not know my plan of going to France and study with him, he did not know I existed. So I get to France and very quickly, reality has all sorts of demands, right? Everything from finding a place to live to like finding a way to make money Mm -hmm. from the biggies, uh, visa, you know, immigration stuff Mm. that allows me to stay there to uh, living in a country where I don't really speak the language well enough to, so they don't really speak English, definitely not Hebrew. And my French then was marginal. And that was also very difficult, you know, socially and professionally and on many levels, right? So there there were a lot of like difficult factors that I didn't account for when I Mm -hmm. moved, which is probably good they didn't account for them because 
had I, I would never have, have dared to move. And so uh, I moved there and the official goal was to find you two and study with him. But, you know, there's other shit I have to do first. Mm-hmm. Like I have to not be homeless, right? That's, that's, that's a pretty, pretty first priority. top priority. Yeah. <laughs> As it turned out, I didn't really have a lot of time to invest in like finding a way to get in touch with him because I had to deal with other stuff, more mundane stuff. And after a few months there, I kind of forgot that I was looking for him. Like, I, I didn't really actively pursue it so much anymore. It became secondary, mm-hmm. right, to other things that were more pressing. And then one day I got super sick, like not serious sick, but just like a really bad flu. But one that made me go like, okay, I need to go see a doctor. So I did. And the doctor was super nice and he was like making small talk and he was like asking me, what do you do? And I said, I'm a composer and I feel shitty, right? I feel like I'm, I feel so sick yeah. that I'm at the doctor's, right? And he's making small talk and I'm really not into, you know. So he asked me, what do I do? And I said, I'm a composer. Uh, and he goes, you know, I have another patient who's a composer. And I was like, that's very cool. Can you please heal me? And he goes, maybe you know him. And I go, like, probably not. Uh, Please, uh, pills. (laughs) And he says, "Uh, well, maybe you do. His name is uh, Henri Dutieux. And I have to say, he is the best doctor in the world because the moment he said that, I became healthy. (laughs) (laughs) He cured you immediately. (laughs) No, seriously. Like, I was like, my eyes became, like, like, open wide. And I was like, oh, my God. Right? I say to him, listen, I know there's this big thing called uh, doctor-patient confidentiality and Mm -hmm. that you can't really, you know, put me in touch with him or anything. But if I wrote a letter and gave it to you, Mm -hmm. next time you see him, would you mind handing it to him? And then, like, maybe he would be interested in reaching out Mm -hmm. or not. And he's French. So it was like, oh, no, I'll just give you his address. (laughs) Forget client-patient right, privilege. Right, Here's right. all his personal data. No, that's that's amazing. I mean, the, sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the coincidence of that all. This was like just a, like a random doctor, basically, that was yes, you just happened to go to? neighborhood doctor. Right. That's insane. Did you know you must have lived somewhere I at least close didn't, to? I didn't, but wow. once I got the address, yeah. so Paris has the Seine, the river, mm-hmm. splitting it into two banks. And in the middle of the river, there's two islands. A bigger island called Saint-Michel that has the Notre Dame on it. And then a smaller island called Saint-Louis. So I lived on the smaller island. And the doctor was on the smaller island as well. So he gave me the address and turns out, as now, you know, it's it's famously known, I guess. It probably was famously known then too, but I I didn't know Mm -hmm. that Dutier also lives on the island. And you have to understand, it's a small island. It's like four blocks. So, you know, it's a small island and it's kind of self-sufficient. So we had one post office and one bakery and one whatever. It's cute. So most likely that Dutieu and I went to the same grocery store mm. and same post office and same whatever. Every day, it makes sense that we have probably crossed paths many times Mm -hmm. and i never even realized like never even you know thought to look up to see who are the people around me it could be that you know i I saw him every day and didn't register yeah exactly so anyway i get his address and i write a letter 
that I had spent so long on because yeah. also and French. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to his uh, mailbox that was right around the corner from my place. And I, it was kind of like a transparent mailbox. So you could look inside to see if you have new letters. So I put it in. I, I saw it sitting there with some other letters. And I left. It's right around the corner. So the next day, I came back to see if he already got his mail. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. It was still there. Got so it. I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Maybe he didn't have a chance. And I went the day after, and the letter was still there. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And then the day after, the newspaper had uh, uh, an article saying French composer Henri Dutier dies at age 96. I think it was 96, maybe 94. He was very old. Okay, yeah. yeah. Did, did he die like the day you brought the letter to him? Like, I'm wondering if like when, if they said well, like what his okay. date of death was. What, what I know is that when I got the letter to his mailbox, mm-hmm. he was at the hospital. And he oh, spent okay. a few days in the hospital. So he didn't, he was still alive when I put the letter in, but literally wasn't there. three days after I put it in, he, he was gone. It was devastating, but in a sense, it's like devastating without proportion, right? Because I didn't mm-hmm. know him. I've never met him. But I guess it was symbolic. I think the coincidence of the things, like the proximity, kind of made it feel like it's meant to be. So the level of disappointment was overwhelming. And then he was officially the reason why I moved to France. So when he died, I officially lost my excuse. So that marked my last weeks in Paris. What do you think from the experience when you went and left... Looking back, what do you think the biggest difference was? Did you have some type of revelation or how does that fit into your your general growth? I don't know that I can point to a specific thing. I would say that I was kind of like searching and I don't know if it's because I was a composer and we don't know what we're supposed to do. (laughs) It is so true. (laughs) Or if it's because I am me and that's who I am. Mm -hmm. But it definitely was one of the adventures I had in my time searching. So I can say I found my answer, whatever that may be, but it was definitely part of the, of the trek. So you did your master's at Juilliard and you're doing your doctorate at the College of Arts and Science, right? Is that the graduate school? Yep, at NYU. Is there a master's program as well or is that just eight for the doctorate program? So people who don't already have their master's are going to get it in the doing like... Oh, I see what you're saying. So you, it's, if you don't have a master's, you'll just basically get the equivalent of that plus your doctorate right. by completing the whole program. So it's a very, very small program. My cohort was five or six people in all the disciplines, right? Mm-hmm. So musicology, ethnomusicology, and composition. And one of my friends, who's an ethnomusicologist, he cares about what he calls gastromusicology, which is the sounds of chewing and sounds of like stomachs rumbling and the sounds of ASMR, if you know that. I was just thinking that's what, yeah, that's what it sounded like. And a different friend of mine who's a musicologist, he studies Yiddish-speaking communities in rural America and their music. Like, it's so broad at first it felt like in comparison to juilliard it felt like oh it's completely scattered nobody Mm -hmm. knows what's what because in juilliard it's so clear like what's the box like like it's more specific and it's not a negative box it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a box that everybody elects to be part of but yeah didn't i'm very happy to have left the box the academic box at least it was very hard to get used to but now that i have this is my favorite part about the program 
do you feel that being around all these different interests and different people that are focusing on different areas of the music field, has that had any influence on your writing or maybe the way you've thought about composition? I think so. It's very hard to be self-analyzing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's I think that's one of the hardest things. Without the privilege of time. So I... Okay, my answer is yes. It has affected my writing. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if it's a surface thing or if it's deeper than that. And that I okay. will need 10, 15 years to tell you. But yeah. yeah, definitely my writing is affected by the types of ideas we're discussing. Right now I'm super into the concept of speech or the sounds we create in speech beyond the semantic meaning of the words. That is Ooh, okay. the intonation the pacing, the timbre of our voice. I'll give you an example of like a piece I am conspiring to do. So I want to do a piece for narrator in an orchestra or ensemble. Oh, I like that. Which is basically a children's piece mm-hmm. where the narrator is telling a, a children's story. But after the narrator is studying the text and the actually actor, right? It's going to have to be very pronounced Mm. Uh, so after the actor is studying the text of the story i am replacing the text with gibberish so the the form of the text stays the same so instead of the word wolf i will have the world i don't know like boom the point is to keep the drama in the storytelling and the intonation and the pacing and the timbre and the excitement but without having the semantic meaning of the words I see. So you're keeping the inflections and the... Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's really neat. So the in performance, the story is not ever used. It's the rewritten... Right. So people don't know what actually are the details of the story. I mean, this is all a theory, right? I didn't write it yet. I don't know. Maybe it's mm. not going to work. But in my mind, people are going to get a sense that, oh, now it's a scary part. Mm. Or, oh, this is a happy moment. Or this is a jolly moment. Without knowing the details, yeah, because I think a lot can be transmitted just with the sounds. Mm-hmm. And then I have the entire orchestra that can help and support the emotional character of, of the moment. Yeah. So that's one idea that I'm really, you know, toying with that has to do with speech. Mm-hmm. I'm also working now on a string octet that's going to be played this summer in Lucerne. I basically squiggled intonations. And so, you know, go up, goes up, goes down, goes up very quickly or things like that. Okay. And I basically label them with the kind of intent that they carry. Do you specify the, like the vowel or what word you're supposed to be speaking or you just leave that completely up to No, because again, the, the meaning I don't care about. Okay. It's just the gestalt of it. So basically I, I created this kind of like map of how I'm dramatically gonna create the shapes of the piece. And I'm using that as my musical roadmap, I guess. Okay, yeah. Because I think that there's something very natural for humans to perceive in language. I think the kinds of non-semantic information that we pick up from speech is something we have trained in, unbeknownst to us, uh, since we learned how to talk. And I think we get a lot of data from that very easily. And I'm basically trying to see how I can use that to my advantage in my music. Oh, I love that. I love that. Basically, what, what happens, there's no vocalizing in the piece at all. But I'm taking the same idea. So it, it's not about the pitches. It's about the um, silhouette. So the musical material doesn't rely on pitch. 
as much as it relies on the shape and the contour of the peach. I really like peach, that. Right? Are some elements left up to interpretation? For example, do you have instances where, since it's, you know, two different quartets where they're enacting the same gesture at the same time, where they could interpret it differently? Or is every does everyone have their own separate things that they're doing, essentially? It's not really interpretative. That's a hard word to it say. It's a hard word, too. And so I didn't notate it yet. Currently, okay, I have yeah. everything graphically notated, and oh, that's it. not what the players are going to be using. The players are going to be using real, normal, traditional notes mm-hmm. that they're going to have a starting pitch, an end pitch, and some trajectory. Okay. Uh, and there's going to be there's going to have to be some workshopping, like in person, to get everything mm-hmm. working. There's eight separate parts. Sometimes they go together. Sometimes they don't. I really like. I love this concept, and I I love the thing you said that. You don't know how it's going to go. Because I think that sometimes those are the most fun type of pieces to write. Like, it, it depends on the, the scenario. But I think that sometimes going into a piece and the excitement of finding how it's going to turn out is, it is like an experiment. You're saying, here's what I, you know, hypothesize is going to be. And then sometimes finding out what happens may even radically change your concept of the piece itself, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's part of the experiment of it all. That I, I liked when you said you're hoping it's going to turn out... Yeah, I, for one, really enjoy wearing my battle wounds from my failed pieces. I am proud of my failed pieces, but I acknowledge that they're failed. Yeah. Because a lot of time people think, uh, oh, composers just write, you know, complicated music because, uh, you know, they're pretentious. I personally feel like if you hear my music and you feel like it's just complicated, it's probably because it failed. And what I've done did not communicate with you. Mm-hmm. My personal opinion is that's the way it should be. Meaning, like, not saying failed or not failed, but I think that writing something just for the sake of writing something complicated misses the mark. I feel like that in new music, this is a topic that does come up a lot, you know, in terms of what is the goal of writing this piece? Because, you know, if you're writing a symphony in the classical era, the structure and the form and everything is pretty set. So you know what type of goal you're trying to get to a lot more than I would say maybe writing in new music because there's so many options and you have so many different things to do. So how do you feel that you fit in into the, the concept of new music, whatever that means, because that's even just a subjective term? I think at least for me, my goal when I write music is not to innovate. I don't believe that innovation in itself is valuable, but it is to experiment. And I can't say I experiment with every piece or that I experiment to the same extent with every piece. Mm-hmm. Because I don't always experiment with every piece, but I do believe that a big portion of what I'm supposed to be doing is figure out how music works, why it works, where it fails, where it succeeds, and so on. So I don't care so much about innovation or things like that, but I do care about seeing what happens, embracing the failure or the success, and just be willing to know that it's the searching that is what is important and why for me. So where do you see your music going or what's the next frontier that you're looking to explore? Or are you just seeing where you're taken at each step? I have a lot of, you know, ideas of where I want to see myself in terms of, you know, a stable career that is able to sustain me in a way that's not scary or things like that. I definitely have ideas of what I would like in terms of music. I want to think that whatever I want to do in the future, I am doing right now. In, in You know, whenever I go like, oh, it would be cool if I could do X, Y, Z, I just do X, 
XYZ. Doing larger scale works would probably be a, a newer frontier for me. Not that I don't have works that are on the longer side, mm-hmm. but you know, doing a 30 or 40 minute piece would be interesting to deal with. I personally, as a composer, I struggle with forms. They are completely mysterious to me. They're tricky, especially because we kind of, forms of, to an extent have been abandoned, at least in a formal way. So it's, it's almost like you have to determine what the form is going to be on your own. Okay, so, you know, maybe form is not the ideal word. I will say structure. I'm struggling with creating some pacing, <clears throat> creating a narrative, sustaining a drama, basically engaging with my listener, which gets harder and harder when the piece gets longer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if I want to keep your attention for five minutes, maybe I could do that. If I need to keep your attention for 40 minutes, that's a big, big challenge for me that I would love to try and hone. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, it's not the great thing. It sounds like you, the experimentation is going to get you there. You're going to do it. You're going to try it regardless. And I think that that's a super great lesson for anyone that's writing or anyone doing anything. Just do it. Right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been amazing. And I'm having my own like internal, like, oh my gosh, this is so inspiring <laughs> to me. Because it is true. I think the things you're saying are hitting home for me. And I'm hoping that they're also hitting home for a lot of our listeners. So we're really excited to have you on and do this. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And we look forward to all the stuff coming up. And I want to see about all the pieces that are on the horizon. Let's see if they fail or not. I think that they won't. But if they do, that's still exciting. Right. Bye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap for the interview with Michael Seltenreich. Keep an eye out for our next upcoming episode. But in the meantime, give us a rating on iTunes. It helps make us more visible. Also, share this with your friends. We really do want to get the word out about the show. Lastly, check out our newly created Patreon page if you feel like giving us a little bit of monetary support. We really could use it. That's all for this episode. And now, we leave you with a piece by Michael Seltenreich titled, Elegy.
Thank you.